Yes, that, that carol is a carol of, of again, longing, of desire uh, for something that is good and bright and joyous, even in the midst of, of, of hard times. And though it was written centuries ago, it still very much captures our hearts today of where we find ourselves. And, and there's, there is a reason for joy. In the middle of a dark world, there is a reason for joy. And I'm not sure what brought you here today. If you're a part of our church family, we're grateful to celebrate Christmas together. We praise God for what he's done. Again, this is not a, a just a schmaltzy sort of put on a cheery face kind of holiday for us here at Clayton Valley Church. No, we are thinking about the incarnation. The fact that Jesus, the God-man, came to rescue sinners. And maybe you're visiting with us here today, and if that's the case, we want to extend a special welcome again to you. And we really want to think about just what it is that God's accomplished, what it is that God has done in bringing the Messiah, Jesus, and in giving him to us. And so in light of that, Carol, you know, the, the question I would want to ask you today is what do you long for this Christmas? What do you want? Uh, if anything in your life could happen, what's that thing that you're hoping, you know, you can, you can receive this time of year right now? And I want to invite um, you to open in, if you have a, on your phone an app or, or you can use the, the Bible and the chair rack in front of you, I want to invite you to, to open to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 16. And you'll, you'll find that on page 73 in the New Testament, so that'll be toward the, the back of the Bible. On page 73, it's, it's one of the most famously quoted verses. You know, you still to this day at times will see it at a football game under, you know, behind a goalpost. You know, John 3.16, right? Everyone sees it. And it's, it's popular for a good reason. Um, the great reformer Martin Luther, uh, he, he described this verse as the gospel in miniature. And that's really what it is. And, and, and simply what it says is this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is the good news in miniature, isn't it? And, and, and so this verse, we read it all the time, we hear it all the time. And again, maybe it's new for you. And if that's the case, this is, a, you know, hold on to this verse. Don't, don't walk out of here without really taking this in. Because this is a, a beautiful, beautiful description of what God has done to rescue lost people like us. Uh, and, and yet, I also want to take some time to look at some of the verses around it. You know, we'll talk about that a lot as a church, too. The, uh, whenever we're in a passage of Scripture, the context around that passage helps us to see what it means. And it's very interesting because you'll notice, if you look at it, this whole verse starts with the word for. And that should make us go, wait a minute, for? What's happening? Well, th that's a word of explanation. Something's being explained here. The things that came before are being explained. And even portions of the verse itself. And so um, we're going to take some time to kind of look at some of those things. And we'll get back to that for a little bit later. But, but as we look at this passage today, some things that we really need to, to take into consideration and even remember from our time is, is that really what's happened is we're told here that part of the good news, the key really, part of the good news is that God did something beautiful. God did something wonderful in that God gave his unique one-of-a-kind son. Notice, 
For he gave his only begotten son. That only begotten phrase, that means this person, this one is unique. There's, there's no one like him. There's, there's nothing parallel to the beauty and wonder and goodness of this gift that God gave. And notice, God gave him. God wasn't, you know, kind of like strong-armed to give up his son. And God didn't do it reluctantly. No, he gave his son. And in that phrase, we find all kinds of different theological, beautiful uh, things. We, we, we find that God gave his son in the same way that we find in the Old Testament, Abraham was called to sacrifice his son. Only thankfully, Abraham didn't have to do it, right? If you recall that section from the book of Genesis, uh, Abraham actually, God said, you're going to sacrifice this son, the son of promise, Isaac. Again, your one son. And that, that's the phrase throughout that account is your one son, your one son. Again, your unique, one of a kind, the child of promise. And then in the moment that, that Abraham was going to follow through and obey God, God says, stop, don't do it. Because it was a picture to show us what God himself would do when he gave his son. What did he give his son for? He gave his son to be the sacrifice for sin. Another picture we find in the Old Testament is the Passover lamb, where uh, we would see that God's people sacrificed a lamb. They took the blood and put it on the doorpost of their home so that when the angel of death came over in their time in Egypt, he would spare them. What did they do? They trusted God by faith. They said, Lord, we're trusting you. We're going to follow what you've told us to do. We're going we're to have this lamb take in our place, in a substitutionary way, death. And then by the blood being put on the doorpost of the home, when you pass over in your righteous just judgment, we're being passed over. And so the lamb would be sacrificed year after year after year for centuries until finally John the Baptist is on the scene and he's baptizing people. And then he sees Jesus. And what does he say? He says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what God did. He gave his son. And you might think, well, why do I need that? I don't, I don't need someone to die in my place for my sins. I'm actually a pretty good person. And I think the Bible would challenge you. If that's what you're thinking today, the Bible would challenge you and say, hold on one second. You know, we're told in the scriptures what God's law is. Uh, you can think of the Ten Commandments if you'd like to. You know, you shall not bear false witness. And from that, we get the principle of lying. And the question we need to ask is, have I ever lied before, ever? And oftentimes with the response I'll get if I ask someone that, and even the response in my own heart when I ask myself that, the first thought is, well, not really. <laughs> you know what that means? The answer is yes. <laughs> That's what that means. There is no kind of, that kind of, you know. And, and the commandments go on from there. Have you ever stolen everything? You should not commit adultery. And oftentimes so people will say, well, I, I haven't done that. But then Jesus will say, truly, truly, I say to you, if someone looks upon another one to, person to lust after them in their hearts, they've committed adultery in their heart. The Bible says you shall not murder. And we can say, well, I've never done that before. But then Jesus will come along and he will say, if you've ever looked at someone and called them empty head or fool, You've committed murder in your heart. I've called people way worse than empty head. 
So the truth is, we do not keep God's law. And we're told clearly in the scriptures that God is not only the sovereign creator overall, the loving creator overall, but he's also the one that we owe obedience. We owe uh, our all to him. We owe, owe to love him in our thoughts, words, and deeds. We don't do that, and that's called sin. And because of that, because he is a holy, holy, holy God, he is coming to judge. In the same way that in the Old Testament that, that the angel of death went over and passed over God's people Israel because the blood of the lamb was over them, in the same way, God's judgment is coming. Now, it's going to be even greater in that it's going to be worldwide, universe-wide. He's coming in judgment. And the question is, are you under his provision of a substitutionary sacrifice in your place? If so, you have a lot of reasons to rejoice. But if not, I need to warn you, the Bible would say you will face God's judgment and you will not survive that, his wrath. And so the call is to turn and receive this gift that God's given. So again, God is the one who gave his unique one-of-a-kind son. But then we want to ask a question, well then, you know, why? What, what, what motivated God to do that? Why would God give his son in this way? And we see that in the first portion of the verse. Because, there's that little word for, because God loves the world. Because God loves the world. And we kind of stop and go, wait a minute, God loves the world? And, and so to, to understand that little phrase, we're gonna, we need to back out a little bit and take a look at the ways that God describes his love in the Bible. Because we find that, that God's love is expressed in different ways throughout the scriptures. It's not just sort of this one thing. It's, there are many different ways that God expresses his love. And there's different kinds of love that God expresses. So first, uh, we see in the Bible that uh, there is the unique love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father. You know, within, within the Trinity, it's a beautiful thing that God loves the Son, the Son loves the Father. Jesus says that throughout the gospel, gospel accounts. And uh, secondly, we would also see that there's this sense of God's, God's love for his creation, what he's made. So we would call that God's providential love, being that God oversees his creation. Uh, certainly in Genesis 1 and 2, when he made the universe, we see that that is an act of love. And then we find Jesus in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 6, for example, talking about the lilies of the field and how God makes sure that they're cared for. Why? Because God loves his creation. Or we, we see how uh, there are birds that are fed. Whether a human being sees it or not, the sparrows, they don't go hungry. Why? Because God lovingly feeds them. We find uh, that uh, not even a sparrow would, you know, fall to the ground without his being aware. And so there's a loving way in which God tends to or cares for his creation. A third way we see God's love expressed is the particular love he has for his people. Those who he's rescued. We see that in, in several places uh, from the Old Testament account in Exodus when God chose his people and he says, I didn't choose you because you were mighty, because you were great, because you were smart. He said, I chose you because I love you. And so we want to make sure that we would see that. Um, and then this other, there's a fourth way in which God expresses his love and that would be his saving stance toward his fa the fallen world. The world that he made, the world that he's grieved 
that it's turned away from him. So his saving stance toward his fallen world. And so let's be careful to see that in this portion of John, that's the love that's being referred to. It is God loves the world. And it does. It means the whole world. There have been several people who have tried to take this term and, and, and put it different places. Some redefine the world world to not mean the whole world. But that's not what the term means. It means the whole world. God loves the entire world. It says it very clearly here. At the same time, others kind of take this and turn it into sort of like this sort of universal kind of, kind of sappy kind of love. Like, that's right. Everybody's fine because God loves them. You know, it's sort of like, you know, God's this old man in the clouds and he's looking down. He's always smiling at you no matter what kind of a thing. But that's not what this is talking about either. If we take the term world and we actually look at how it's used throughout this gospel, the gospel of John, or we even see the way world is used in the apostle John's other writings, we find, as one writer put it, that this term emphasizes not the world so much in its bigness, but the term world emphasizes the world in terms of its badness. Okay, so again, world here is not so much the world's bigness, but the world's badness. In other words, throughout John's epistles and his, in his gospel here, the world describes mankind's moral rebellion against God. That's what the world describes. So he'll write in 1 John, for example, do not love the world or the things of the world because of the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Don't love those things because they're fading away. So the world is really the human race's high-handed, bitter, treasonous betrayal of God as our creator and king. And that world is a world of wickedness against God. It's a world of deliberate, high-handed rebellion against God. And here what we find is that world is the world that God loves. Can you imagine that? This world that has deliberately rebelled against God, that hates God, that spits in his face, that murdered his son. That is the world that God loves. And that, that is the world that he gave his son for. That's the heart of God. That, this shows us the heart of God in a way that's so important for us to grasp. We find the Lord declaring this in other places in the scriptures. The prophet Ezekiel cries out, speaking um, the words of God and says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? Do you see the pleading? God loves the world. The world in rebellion and wickedness against him. We find the same thing spoken of in the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says this. This is good and acceptable, referring to praying during the different gathering times of God's people for those who are in government leadership and praying for kings and princes, etc. He says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. But then he says, why? Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's heart. 
So God stands with arms open to a wicked world and says, turn to me and be saved. God gives his precious, unique, one-of-a-kind son to that wicked world and says, I am giving him so that you might be rescued. Turn to me. Don't die. Turn to me. So again, we see that God gave his unique, one-of-a-kind son. And why did he do it? Because God loves the world. The world of evil wickedness. The world that stands in rebellion against him. God loves that world and gave his son. So now here's a question. How will you respond? How are you going to respond to that kind of love? And we find here in this section of John that there's essentially two choices. You can either love darkness or you can look to Jesus. Two choices. You can love darkness or look to Jesus. What does it mean to, to love darkness? Well, we find that in verses 18 and following. He says this, he who believes in him, again, verse 16 said, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So we find in verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Look at verse 19. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So here we find in verse 18 that those who believe are not judged. Why? Because you've been placed in Jesus. God's judgment that comes, you're safe. In him, you're rescued. You are saved. But then you'll notice, as he goes on in describing, he says, he who does not believe has been judged already. And you're going, well, what does that mean? What's he saying there? Because if someone rejects Jesus, are they judged right away? Well, in a sense, no. God's judgment is still coming. But in another sense, yeah. There is a kind of a, a, a way in which God operates where there's, there's a, a sense in which God uses the very evil of a person's deliberate, high-handed, chosen rejection of him to be an element of judgment that a person brings upon themselves. In other words, you don't want God, God's saying, well, then you won't have me. And even in that, there is, there is a, a, a form of, of judgment. Why? Because you're refusing to believe. You will not turn to him. And then we find out, well, why would someone do that exactly? And we find that in verses 19 and 20. The truth is, light has come into the world. Light is here. I love how Andrew just lit the, the last candle, the Christ candle. He is the light of the world, he says. Light has come. The question is, how do we respond to that light? And, and here we see that the response for those that refuse the light 
is to turn away from that light, to reject the light. But there's a reason. Look at the middle of verse 19. Because they love the darkness rather than the light. They prefer to live without knowledge of God. This is what uh, some have called sort of the moral escapism that people love to live in. They want to pretend like there is no God. Because that way they can do what they want. And so there's a, a brilliance to Jesus' invasion of the world. There's a purity. You'll recall uh, when Peter first encountered Jesus there by the Lake of Galilee, when Jesus told him, hey, put your nets in over here. And he's like, well, we've been fishing all day, but I guess so, just for you. Puts the nets in. They're full of fish. And Peter goes, whoa, who is this? What does Peter do? He doesn't say, hey, we want you on the boat every week so we can get more fish, man. We've got a good business proposal for you. That's not what he says. No, Peter bows down and he says, Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. See, when the light of holiness comes, it exposes us, all of us. If you're here visiting with us today, you need to realize something. We are a church. We are a people who are not running around saying, I've got my act together. No, we're all a big mess, essentially. And we need Jesus. And so if you feel like a big mess, you're in good company. Welcome. But what happens is we find ourselves now seeing that there is a way in which people reject Jesus. We may turn away from him because we like the dark. You know, maybe some of you uh, enjoy sleeping in. Maybe some of you were at school for a while. Now you're off school. Yeah, I'm talking to you college people who are back. Welcome. What happens when mom and dad walk into the room and you've been sleeping, and oh, I don't know, it's like one in the afternoon, and you're still in bed. <laughs> and what happens? They take the shades, boom! What happens? Oh! You know, you feel like you're kind of like being turned to dust right there on the bed, right? It's like I'm just incinerated <laughs> by the light. You know, what do you want? You want them to close the shades, turn off the lights, close the door, I, you know, and again, I, that's not a, a bad thing, a wrong thing. Most of us parents, full disclosure, you know what it is? We remember those days and we miss them. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I'm just being totally honest about that. But in a sense, that's what happens with light. And here, there's a, a love of that darkness rather than light. Notice, because their deeds were evil. So there's a longing for, I don't want there to be a God. I don't want God to invade my life and change things. I like where I am and what I'm doing. Leave me alone. If that's you today, there is a warning here for you. And the warning is this, if you are going to love the darkness, there will come a day when you cannot ever get out of it. There will come a day when the, the, the choice before you of turning to Christ, coming to Christ, it will no longer be available. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. So how will we respond to this gift of God, this unique one-of-a-kind son that he's given? Again, one, one option would be you can love the darkness, but thankfully there's another option. And that is this, you can look to Jesus. You can look to Jesus. And we find that in the verses just prior 
to John 3.16. So let's go ahead and back up a bit. And I want you to take a look at verses 13 through 15, just to kind of set up the context. A guy named Nicodemus is visiting Jesus in the middle of the night. And the reason he's visiting Jesus in the middle of the night, he's a Pharisee. He's part of a group of people that generally speaking are looking at Jesus and going, we don't like this guy. We don't like him because we're the religious leaders and this guy's pulling people away from us towards him. Not only that, he's teaching things that we don't like because we made up a bunch of rules that people are supposed to follow and he's saying those rules are man-made. And by the way, the only reason Jesus said that was because they were man-made, okay? That's why he said that. They were taking God's law and they were building a, a hedge of protection around the law, ultimately taking then God's standard and raising it. And when we raise the standard above God's standard, we are adding to God's word. So Nicodemus, though, is hearing Jesus. He's seeing the miracles. He saw a man lowered from a ceiling who could not walk, who was paralyzed. And Jesus said, arise, get up, take your pal and go home. And that was shocking enough. But what was more shocking is that before Jesus did that miracle, he said to this guy, your sins are forgiven. And of course, that shocked Nicodemus. It shocked everybody who was there because only God can forgive sins. And that was Jesus' point. Because then Jesus says, oh, well, what's easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to tell this guy who can't walk to walk? Tell you what, just so you can know that I have the authority to forgive sins? Yes, because God alone has that authority. What's Jesus claiming? I'm God. Tell you what, I'll prove it to you. Take up your pallet and go home. That's what the guy did. So, so Nicodemus is shocked. He's puzzled by all this stuff. So he's coming to Jesus in the middle of the night because he doesn't want anybody else to know. And Jesus is talking with him. And Jesus begins by telling him, well, you're not even going to see the kingdom unless you're born again. And Nicodemus is going, what time? Am I supposed to go back into my mother's womb? Like, how does that work? Born again. And then Jesus goes, oh, you don't understand this? Huh, you're a teacher of the law, but you don't get this? So Jesus is saying, I've instructed you on this before in the Old Testament. There were other allusions to the fact that there's going to come a day when the Holy Spirit will give people a new heart. Heart of stone will become a heart of flesh. You will receive my words. That was all in there. So, so Nicodemus replies with, how can this happen? And so Jesus is now in the process of explaining these things to him. And so when he, when he says to him, um, you know, verse 12, if I told you of earthly things and you don't believe, how are you going to believe heavenly things? So in other words, what he's saying is, I'm, this is just the beginning. I'm telling you what happens to people on earth when they come to, 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 to know me. When they turn to me, there's the spirit enters in. They're going to be reborn and they're going to have spiritual life. But if you don't get that, how am I supposed to tell you about all these other things that you, you know, would want to know about? And then Jesus goes to an episode in the Old Testament that Nicodemus would readily understand. And uh, he talks to him about a time, and we find it in the, in the book of, of Numbers, where the people of Israel grumbled against Moses, grumbled against God. And like, you know, we, we're, we're tired of roaming around the wilderness. We had it great in Egypt. I don't know why you saved us from there. Again, they don't remember things very clearly because they were in slavery in Egypt. Okay, but, you know, not that we ever do that. We remember past times. Ago, oh, it was so great back then. And you really think about it, you're going, hold on. No, it wasn't. But so they were kind of changing things up, you know, revisionist history within our own minds, right? That's what they're doing. And, uh, and then they're saying to, to, to Moses, we don't like where we're going. Uh, we don't like the food. And frankly, Moses, we don't like you. Okay? And so they're grumbling. And so what does God do? He, he, he sets uh, in, in, into motion a plague of fiery serpents. Now, the serpents weren't on fire. Okay, that wasn't the point. The serpents were fiery in that when they bit someone, the wound was 
very, very painful. It felt like it was burning and the people would die. And so then the people come and say, we're sorry, please forgive us. Moses, who we just said, we don't like you. Uh, now, will you please intercede for us with God? And Moses does this. And so God tells Moses, take a pole and take a bronze serpent and put it on top of the pole and, and you know, on top of the staff, excuse me, a staff, and hold it up. And when people look at that, they'll be rescued from this plague. And so that's what, what Moses did. And what happened was when, when he put that on the staff and people looked at the bronze serpent, instantly they were, they were saved from that plague. And so now Jesus is going to refer to that in, in describing something for Nicodemus in, in order to help him get it. Because again, Nicodemus is going, I don't get it. And so look at verse 13. He says this, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. You see what's happening? That beautiful passage in verse 16 is really explaining this whole idea of of what Jesus is describing about himself in connection with the bronze serpent in the wilderness in the Old Testament. And as you can see, there's a kind of a play on words happening. You've got ascended and descended, lifted up. You've got these different prepositions, up, down, up, down. You know, what's he, what's he doing with that? Uh, in verse 13, he's saying, no one's ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, uh, Nicodemus, you're thinking you can peer into and see heavenly things, but I'm telling you, no one's ever come from earth and gone up to there. And not only that, I'm greater than that, because there were legends at the time, by the way, people who had descended to heaven and seen things. Jesus is saying, not only have I been there, but even more so, I'm from there. I came down from heaven. I can tell you what's going on, because that's my place of origin. And then he describes in verse 14, again, the serpent in the wilderness was lifted up, and so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He's referring to himself, the Son of Man, the, the, the promised Messiah, the ruler who's going to come and take everything that's wrong and make it right. And he's saying, even as that serpent was lifted up, I'm going to be lifted up. What's he talking about? He's talking about the cross. He's saying, I'm going to be lifted up on the cross. And then, verse 15, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So even as the people of the Old Testament looked up and saw the serpent, and by the way, you might ask, why is it a serpent? That's a weird thing to make it, isn't it? Well, the serpent, we find, uh, again, in the Old Testament, uh, you have a, a symbolic reference there to the original temptation. came from the, the, Satan in the form of a serpent. You find that this very plague is a plague of fiery serpents. And so what's happening is there is a picturing of the sin. The sin itself is being placed up in a place and, and it very much there's a, a way in which sin is being represented in that way. Just as Jesus on the cross, we're told, he who knew no sin, what became sin on our behalf? that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So again, there's, a, there's another kind of tie-in with, with who Jesus is. But, but they, in the Old Testament, looked up to the serpent on, on, on top of the staff in the same way Jesus calls us to look to him, hung up on the cross as an act of faith. In both situations, it was an act of faith. 
The serpent represents sin. Jesus is the one who knew no sin but became sin on our behalf. And so now Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, just as in the Old Testament, the people had to look up and see the serpent there, so too you need to look up and you will look up and you will see me. And that is going to happen actually with Nicodemus because we realize after Jesus is crucified, there are two people who come to retrieve Jesus' body and to bury it. Nicodemus is one of them. So he did in fact, when he looked up at the cross and saw Jesus, he did in fact believe he did receive eternal life. And so what do we need to take away from that? If you are here today and you've never come to that place of trusting in Jesus, you need to look up to him by faith. Look to him and you will be saved. And you might be here today going, you know what, I, I, did, I did trust Jesus at one time. I did. But it didn't work. You know, I, I trusted him to, to provide for my family financially, and we're still in debt up to our eyeballs. I trusted him to provide a spouse for me, but, but I'm still single. Or I trusted him to save my marriage, but my husband's still addicted to porn. Or I trusted him to heal my mom's sickness, and she battled a horrible disease and then died. I want you to know, as, as devastating as each of those situations is, trust, trust in the Bible is not, I believe you, God, now do what I believe you to do. That's not, that's not what trust is. Actually, when we do that, you know what that is? That's, that's a masked demand of God is what that is. And sometimes we, we demand of God things that God never promised us. And then we turn around and we blame him for it. And we go, hey, I trusted you, you didn't come through. When in fact, God didn't promise that thing. That's why it's so important that we know the scriptures. No, but when the Bible talks about trust, it means to rest in him. The, the idea would be, you're, you know, you've got a, there's, a, there's a chair and you're walking along and you need rest and you just lay in it. That's trusting God. And, and trust does not task God with the good things you want him to do. No, trust grasps God as the greatest good you could ever want. Again, trust does not task God with the good things you want him to do. Trust grasps God as the greatest good you could ever want. So the Bible calls out and says, Trust God, rest in him. And Jesus is saying, if you look to me, if you look to me by faith in my perfect life, death on the cross and resurrection, you will gain eternal life. It'll be yours. And Jesus tells us what that means. Jesus says, and this is eternal life, to know you personally, relationally, to know you, the only true God, through Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So again, if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus, look to Christ. Rest in him. Believe in him. 
And you might think, well, that's great, but doesn't that just, that kind of trust in Jesus just sort of make it a big kind of pie in the sky, kind of detached from real problems in the real world? And the answer is no, not at all. Here's the thing, when you come to Jesus, when you are in Christ, now you, you uh, are related to God the way you were created to be related to him. You now know him and he is the one who is, is caring for you. Your sins have been taken away and cast into the depths of the sea, never, to, never to, to cling to you again. You're forgiven. You're adopted as God's child. You have a personal, intimate walk with your creator. Your trials and suffering are not random. No, they're saturated with God's good purpose for your life. Your biggest problem, and not really all of our biggest problem, whether we want to think about it or not, and by the way, our culture is so good at helping us not to think about this problem, but your biggest problem is death. When you trust Jesus, your death is not devastation. Your death is actually translation into a new realm where you will always be with the Lord. Evil, sin, and even death has been dealt a death blow by Jesus' resurrection from the death. And so as we travel through this dark world, God's word is open to us by, by his spirit. It becomes a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And it helps us to learn how to, how to navigate through trials. It also helps us learn how to enjoy days of peace. Not only that, when you come to Jesus, your relationships are renovated from people serving as a means to an end to people being those you are free to love. Not because life's been easy, not because they treat you right, but no, because you're emulating your heavenly father. Remember, God so loved the world. Not the world in its bigness, but the world in its badness. And so as his follower, you're now free to love people as well. Why? Because he first loved you. So the list could go on and on. But no, trust in Jesus is not a detached state of mind separate from real life. This is not the kind of thing where, you know, some, some Eastern religions, it's like just, you know, separate yourself from the physical realm, get into, you know, and kind of go. No, that's not it. This is practical day-to-day -day, rubber meets the road living that is transformed by walking with God through Jesus Christ. And that's eternal life. Eternal life literally means life from the age to come. So today we live with resurrection power from the age to come by the grace of Jesus. So please, don't live in such a way where you're loving darkness and hating the light. Instead, come into the light. Trust him. Look to Jesus who brings eternal life. There was a, a snowstorm that was supposed to hit the evening of Monday, January 31st in 2022. And Shannon was working from home, uh, but she had to leave that afternoon to go to her office. Um, she lives in Saskatchewan, Canada. And let's face it, there's some serious weather up there. For Californians, we're like, wait, what's that? Yeah, just look at Canada. It's in the middle, all right? Toward the bottom, middle. So she, she went in because she needed to sign a financial aid check for a student because she worked for that university and, and she was the director of finance and she wanted to get that thing signed. So she, she's like, I've got plenty of time. It takes 30 minutes to get there on the highway. And so she, when she got there, a colleague came in. They did the paperwork. He co-signed the check. They left for the day. Here's the problem. Her coworker forgot his laptop. And so, uh, you know, she, she, she called him, but he was already at home. And so she's like, you know what? Your place is a 15-minute drive, no problem. I'll just bring your laptop to you. 
Uh, I got plenty of time to get home. And so, uh, but on, on her way home, she decided she's going to take a country road instead of the freeway because she realized, you know, the freeway gets backed up pretty fast. I do want to get home. So she, she thought she'd make better time on a country road. But then the snow started and it was coming down fast. And with, within minutes, she was in a whiteout. She could not see two feet in front of her. Um, some people called this particular storm a snownado. It was coming down so fast. And, and they could call it that because the wind is so intense, it actually screams. And so the road she was on switched from paved to just gravel as she's driving. And her windows are fogging up and getting covered with snow. And, and she really did not have a clue where she was or what side of the road she was on or anything. And eventually she just decided to stop. She's like, you know, I'm going to go off into a ditch if I don't just stop the car. And so she kept the car running. She calls 911. The dispatcher tells her, hey, just stay in your car. Wait out the night. Things will be fine. And because uh, no one's going to come get you in this until morning. And this is how Shannon describes the next moment. Quote, those seconds after the call were agony. Getting out to walk in a whiteout with zero visibility, high winds, and a temperature that was hovering around 14 degrees when I didn't even know where I was wasn't an option. But I worried other drivers wouldn't see me and would barrel into the car from the front or behind. Or the tailpipe would get clogged with snow and I'd die from carbon monoxide poisoning. Or the storm would continue for longer than predicted and I'd be found too late. Breathe, I told myself. And she's just trying to calm herself down. She's like, panicking isn't going to do anything. For, for me. But then another thought hit her. My kids. It was the first time they would ever be spending a night without me at home. I called and told them what was happening, forcing myself to sound calm. I didn't tell them I was terrified that, that I, a problem solver my whole life, couldn't figure out what to do. So 6 p.m. rolls around. It's getting dark. And then she's thinking, what would my black Ford Edge SUV look like in a whiteout at night? A shadow? Maybe invisible. Suddenly, a truck drove by, barely missing her. So she texted her colleague that she'd gotten the laptop for, and she kind of jokingly says, hey, this was a bad idea, obviously. And he goes, you know what? Ping me with your Google location. And so she did. And a few minutes later, he texted back a screenshot of the satellite view of where she was, so she could see. And they figured out she was on a road called Boivier Lane, in between two farms. And by now, it's about 6.30, and so she's posting this new information to her Facebook community group. Hey, this is where I'm at. And guess what happens? You know what? People start sharing that. They start sharing that. Pretty soon, someone goes, hey, wait, I know the, the, some of the people who live in that area. Let's see if we can get them. To, to you know, know that you're there. Maybe some help can come your way. And so by 8 p.m., her cell phone rings, and it's the son of the farmer who owned the land beside the road she was stranded on. And so he told her, hey, my dad is coming to get you. And then about 45 minutes later, she saw a tall figure in a yellow rain slicker coming towards her in the dark with a flashlight. As she put it, I've never been more relieved to see someone in my life. It was Andre Bovier who had walked about 550 yards through the blizzard to come get her, fighting the wind and the snow each step of the way, shielding his eyes from the stinging snow with a mitted hand. 
Can you drive? She asked shakily. My nerves are shot. He thrust his face closer to hers, and right then he noticed, or excuse me, right then she noticed he had silver hair, a wrinkled skin on his face. He was an elderly person. And he looks at her with a calm and steady voice, and he says, no. <laughs> I want you to follow me in your car. And then he leaned in a little closer, and he said, you're going to be okay. So he turns around, and he starts walking through the snow. He's sure of the direction. She is driving slowly behind him. She's clutching the wheel. She's looking intently at his path. She is watching him as he navigates through this treacherous storm. And she's just starting to kind of calm down a little bit. Eventually they reach the house and, and Shannon describes that moment. She says, I got out of the car, burst into tears, all my fears turning into relief and gratitude. And of course, then um, his wife, Marianne Bovier, treated her to hot drinks and applesauce. And then Andre, who was 80 years old, uh, he, he said he'd noticed two other cars stranded. He went back into the storm to get them. Brought them in. And they all spent the night together telling, telling stories. It was a father with his two kids and then another couple and their daughter. So all of them were gathered telling stories. The kids uh, enjoyed pizza together. And then they, they slept that night on sofas and reclining chairs throughout the house. By 5.30 the next morning, Andre had cleared the driveway out. And uh, they were all safe to go home. He became a dear friend of Shannon's. But here's the point. Andre came to her in the storm. And what did he tell her? Look to me. Follow me. You're going to be okay. He, he rescued her. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus says, look to me. I will rescue you from the dark, raging storm of this wicked world. I will save you from the evil, dark storm inside of you because of your own sin. Follow me and I will bring you safely home to me. And you will have eternal life. That is the message of joy to the world. And it can be yours today. There's a song that uh, Jessica is going to be sharing with us that describes this joy in a beautiful way. So I want you to pay close attention to the words as we sing that now. 